Thank you very much, Yvonne. And I must say, as a historian, I treasure the library and all that it does very dearly because it's just such a wonderful place for anybody with an interest in history, whether it's as just an interested reader or a, a research scholar. Um, Your Excellencies, Academy members and friends, um, I just want to begin by welcoming you here today to what is a very crowded gathering and it's wonderful to see you all. Um, since the first lecture in this 1014 series, which happened on the 25th of February, we've heard much about the Vikings and Ireland, their influence upon integration with the native Irish, and of course about Brian Boru and his engagement with the Vikings of Limerick and Dublin, culminating in what the National Museum of Ireland has described as the Battle of Clontarf, the Battle for Dublin. So it's Clontarf, but it's the Battle for Dublin. I would like at this stage to thank everybody who has participated in this series. Uh, uh, speakers in earlier sessions, uh, Professors O'Cronin, Duffy, Lennon and O'Coroin, and Dr. Neuerdl and Dr. Harrison, who have taken us on a journey of discovery through 10th and 11th century Ireland, the political dynamic, the territorial wars, the family agendas, and the reception and transmission of the Clontarf story in later decades up to our own times. To date, 800 people have followed the story of Clontarf here in the Academy, and today we have undoubtedly, I'm happy to say, broken through the 900 mark, just looking around this room. Today we're going to change tack, we're moving beyond Ireland, and we're moving beyond Dublin, and in these two final lectures we have two speakers from the Viking heartland, uh, experts on the Viking world and the many aspects of that world and I hope you give them a really warm welcome and I hope you greet them with great friendship even though they do represent <laughs> past invaders. So courtesy I want to thank the Danish Embassy in Ireland and particularly His Excellency Niels Pulse uh, because he's enabled us to welcome the first speaker today Dr Anne Peterson of the National Museum of Denmark at Copenhagen. Her research interests encompass Viking Age Scandinavia, Viking Age archaeology, landscape archaeology, Norway, Scandinavian archaeology, royal sites. In other words, everything Viking, and of course the major site of Yelling in Denmark. She is a much published author, and one of her major books, which is a co-publication with M.K. Holst et al., is The Late Viking Age Royal Construction at Yelling, Central Jutland, Denmark recent investigations and a suggestion for an interpretive revision. Dr. Peterson will speak today on power and politics in late Viking Denmark. And our second speaker has been, a, Dr. Peterson flew in this morning and a, managed to arrive on time and I hope she is relaxed enough to speak to us. A, our second speaker today who has been visiting Ireland for some weeks now is Professor Jan Vidar Sigurdsson Professor of History in the Department of Archaeology, Conservation and History at the University of Oslo. Because Professor Sigurdsson has completed an Erasmus staff exchange at NUI Maynooth and that has given him an opportunity to meet a, quite a number of Irish scholars and to meet Irish university students, which must, be, must have been an interesting experience for you. Of his many published works, I just mentioned two. The Changing Role of Friendship in Iceland, 900-1300, in a book that he co-edited called Friendship and Social Networks in Scandinavia, 1000-1800, and Kings, Earls and Chieftains, Rulers in Norway, Orkney and Iceland, 900-1300, to 
ideology and power in the Viking and Middle Ages, Scandinavia, Iceland, Ireland, Orkney, and the Faroes. Um, I'm really grateful to the Norwegian Embassy in Ireland, and in particular His Excellency Roald uh, Sturla Nace, for their sponsorship of Professor Sigurdsson, who would speak to us today on Ireland, Norway, and Iceland in the second half of the 13th century. So I'd just ask you to give a very warm welcome to our first speaker today. Um, our first speaker today, who, who is Dr. Anne Peterson uh, of the National Museum in Denmark, uh, and her speak her, her talk will be followed by by our second speaker and do bear in mind what Yvonne said this has been podcast so noise interruptions phones um, it would would be would be a, an intrusion so if you don't if, if you want to repeat it if you can tell your friends about it the mistress uh, they can catch it on a podcast which I'm afraid I'm going to have to do for at least the second lecture because I have another engagement but you're very welcome thank you very much Your Excellencies, Madam President, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I should like to thank the Royal Irish Academy and Ambassador Nils Pultz for an invitation to present some of the most recent results of Viking Age studies in Denmark. The occasion is officially the celebration of the thousand-year anniversary of the Battle of Clontarf in April 25th, as we have heard. Um, this event took place just a few months after the death of the Danish king Sven Forkbeard in February. My lecture won't be on the battle, and it won't be on um, Sven Forkbeard either, but it will be about his famous father, King Harold Bluetooth, and the power politics of the 10th century in Denmark, which in a sense laid the foundation for the future development of the Danish Kingdom and the expansion initiated by King Sven and his son Knut the Great, which you may have heard of. King Harald is known for, among other things, the impressive runestone in Yelling, which he commissioned around the year 965 to honor his parents and, as on all runestones, mainly to commemorate his own achievements. The runestone can still be seen in Yelling, as you can see here, standing atop its uh, original foundation between two huge mounds. One is burial mound, the other is empty of burial, and it's the front of the present Romanesque church. These monuments, since 1994, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, they have attained almost iconic status in Viking Age studies. Some of you may know the runestone and the inscription, but should anyone be in doubt, it reads, King Harald commanded this monument to be made in memory of Gorm, his father, and in memory of Tuvi, his mother, that Harald who won for himself Denmark all, and on the other faces, Norway, and made the Danes Christians. 
More than 350 years ago, the Danish professor Ole Vorm told us all to here truly admire the skill of our ancestors who could say so much, convey such a great events in so few words. The problem for us today is that they are actually too few words. So uh, the meaning of the runestone isn't self-evident. It has been discussed for centuries. What did the king actually mean when he won for himself all of Denmark? What did he imply when he made the Danes Christians? And to us today, um, new questions have come in. Where did the stone carver find the inspiration for this unique monument? Or indeed, a much greater question, how did King Harold achieve all that he said he did? By what means and what strategies did he reach his goals and his ambitions, and how did he communicate them to his peers, his followers, and his subjects? In modern terms, we could look at this stone as a monumental piece of self-promotion. And today we know that its setting was no less so. Over the past decades, archaeology, many other scientific disciplines have uncovered new evidence both about Denmark and about uh, yelling as such. And that's what I'm going to talk about. We are today able to approach the king and his reign with greater confidence than before, and we can, in a sense, elaborate the inscription of the runestone. I'm going to begin with an overview of the archaeology in Yelling and then continue with the implications. Just to make sure that you all know where Yelling is, this is Denmark. Yelling is in East Jutland, only about three kilometers east of the main road, the army road, the hairline, uh, up through uh, Jutland, running from the border at Hildeby up to the uh, area around the present town of Vibon. Um, in this map, I have put other sites which I'm going to talk about, mainly the circular fortresses, a unique uh, architectural achievement in Denmark, the Browning Eng Bridge, a major site, and then extensions at Dennevirke, all which are linked to the reign of King Harold. Scientific research into the history and meaning of the monuments at Yelling goes back to the days of the early antiquarians in the late 16th and the 17th century. Archaeology has taken place since the early 19th century and has in effect followed the scientific development of archaeology as a discipline. So you can see here in the um, documentation from the different excavation campaigns how methods, how documentation changes. So we have changing interpretations and one of the core objectives of the National Museum Yelling Project, the project that I am the uh, principal investigator of, is to answer some of the questions that have come up in recent uh, decades um, following the most comprehensive interpretation of the 1990s. The Yelling project was initiated in 2008 with a generous support from the Danish Bikuben Foundation. Our starting point 
was new evidence from Yelling that indicated that it was necessary yet again to rethink the site. This began in 2006. Large stones were uncovered by a um, magnetic survey in the area north of the North Mound and subsequent excavations by the local museum revealed traces of a palisade. You can see very clearly in the bottom image the corner of the palisade. And um, this led to a desire to know more, especially to know when was this palisade from? Was it linked to the existing monuments? The results of our excavations have added scale and complexity to the site. It's impressive, both in terms of the resources and the architectural knowledge required for its um, construction, and also in terms of the consequences it has for our understanding of Yelling, and also for our understanding of the ambitions of the king. So, following in 2009 extensive trial excavations north of the monuments, um, we decided to look at the immediate surroundings. If you look at the center of the image, you can see the church in Yelling, and then above and below it, the two mounds. So that was the core of the area. Um, we followed expectations from other sites and looked at the area to the north, but it was surprisingly empty. And that is in an interesting result in itself because it further accentuates the question of why this site was chosen in the first place. The year after, we took excavations to the um, palisade that was identified in 2006. So we conducted four minor investigations uh, to confirm the line of the palisade, and I'll just put it in here so that you can see it, and then um, a large-scale excavation, which is in the bottom uh, left-hand corner, of 15,000 square meters to look at the whole area. This was a joint venture between the National Museum, the local Weile Museum, Aarhus University and Copenhagen University. The result was that the full extent of the palisade, 360 by 360 meters, covering a total of 12 and a half hectares, was confirmed. If we go a bit closer, we can see um, that the straight line of the palisade, just as it was in 2006 and 7, it was very easy to identify and follow. The northeast corner we knew. In 2010, the northwest corner was uncovered. You can see the line of the palisade, and then just behind the uh, green hedge, there is the corner uh, in the other image. These two photographs and the excavation also revealed the immediate threat to the preservation of the uh, remains. The layer of topsoil is very thin in the northern parts of the complex, and as you can see under the surveying rod, a modern ditch had almost ruined the corner. Conditions of preservation were better along the southern line of the palisade. Here we could see both the dimensions of the horizontal planks in the palisade. They were about 15 by 30 centimeters uh, in cross-section. 
and we can see, I hope you can see also, uh, traces of vertical posts about 25 centimeters in diameter standing at intervals on the outer side and the inner side of the palisade. The posts had been sunk about 75 centimeters below the top of the subsoil. The depth indicates a palisade of some standing, probably about three meters in height. So it's a, an impressive monument. The northeast quadrant, the 15,000 square meters, they provide, they proved in, even more rewarding in that in addition to a building that was already known, we found two virtually identical buildings of so-called Talabot type. And as an archaeologist, when I say a building, it's because I can see it or imagine it. What we have in reality is the ground plan. But the ground plan was important. It showed a building 23 meters long with an annex added at one gable. That's where the red arrow is. And then a porch facing the palisade and a porch facing the interior. The importance of this building is that it follows a standard. It is a typologically well-known building which was introduced in the 10th century and was common in the second half of the 10th century. And that means it was common in the uh, age of King Harold Bluetooth. We uh, continued excavations in 2011 where some of the post holes that we uncovered, they had a very high concentration of charcoal, indicating that um, the palisade and the building might at some time be burnt down. A building running across the palisade gave us a terminus antiquem, that is a date before which. So that was around 1000. So the palisade now belonged very likely in the second half of the 10th century and had, in parts anyway, already been abandoned in the early 11th century. In the winter of 2012, a small pond across the southern line of the palisade was emptied and we saw traces of oak, which was carbon-14 dated to uh, the Viking Age. So it was not modern oak. Uh, within the project, we decided that this deserved further excavation. So in spring last year, roughly around this time, we emptied the pond once again and excavated a four meter long section of the palisade. And you can see here that the wood is still preserved. The timbers were up to about 50 centimeters in length. They stood exactly in the estimated line of the palisade. And where we before had the traces in the soil, the outlines in the subsoil, now we had the true timbers, a line of massive oak planks and evenly spaced posts. And I hope you can see that they were dug into a very straight-lined trench. The trench was straight. They had been dug into the soil, not sunk into the soil. And that led us to conclude that even though it was a pond today, 
It had been wet then, but not too wet to dig a trench. The wood has now been um, taken up and it will be conserved so that it can come um, on exhibit in Yelling. The wood was important for us because it was possible to date the wood by means of dendrochronology, tree ring dating. The circumstances weren't ideal because the wood had been prepared for the palisade, bark had been removed, unfortunately, but in one sample there was still part of the splint, the last growth rings. These gave, as a result, a dating window of 958 to 985, one uh, post most likely felled in 968. So that is the result now. We have firm dates linking this to the monument complex, linking it to King Harold Bluetooth. So what we have now is a site far different from what we had just a few years ago. Scale and defined space has been added to the monument complex. The interpretations of the 1940s, the interpretations of the 1990s have to be revived. But one aspect has been reintroduced, the notion of a ritual space. So it's not just a static monument, it's a space where something took place. An immense four-sided complex, 12 and a half hectares large, that is many times more than the standard um, manor site of about two and a half hectares. We have buildings spaced along the boundary, at least in the northeast corner, and we have exact planning most clearly expressed in the fact that the diagonals between the corners of the palisade cross each other at right angles exactly over the chamber in the north mound. So these parts are linked very clearly together. And the standards of measurement, you can almost imagine those also, they are very well defined. 360 meters, 120 meters from the gables to the palisade, half a building length between the long wall and the palisade, everything fits together within the measurement possibilities they had then. So just to give you an idea of what we see at the moment, this is the archaeological scene. This is what it may have looked like. Massive buildings, not very many, a palisade, and then a gate. We only have one gate up till now. It seems fairly narrow viewed in, in context with the total length, the 360 meters, but it's not that narrow. It allows for men to pass in, wagons to pass in and out, and we presume, even though we haven't any evidence yet, that the other sides also had gates. When we look at this, it fits very well in with the circular ring fortresses that we have. They are spaced across the country. Tylerbot was examined in the 30s, in Schelland, sensation, but also an enigma. Agaspor in the 40s confirmed the characteristics. Fürkat clarified details. Nonnebagen completed the Danish area, one for each province. 
we have Trelleborg, maybe an earlier site, and then Beaubut, which could be a Scandinavian par or Scanian parallel. This is what they look like, exactly circular, built of timber, turf, and earth, concentric ditches, gates at the four corners of the compass, each quadrant containing four near-identical houses, each about 30 meters in length, and in Trelleborg outside also a cemetery and other buildings. This is what Agasborg, the largest one, looks like. It had not 16 buildings, but presumably 48 identical buildings inside the circular rampart. All these sites are dated to the second half of the 10th century, presumably built in the years around 980. So this is what they might have looked like. Fürket, interesting because here we could see that the buildings needed to be revised. The top one is the interpretation from the 1940s. Today we believe in the lower building, and that is also what we see for Yelling. Nonnebergen has disappeared. If you look at the map, the lower part of the map, there is a circular enclosure. That is all that was visible uh, in a map in the late 16th century. And the work crew standing in the photo are those who removed the last remains of this fortress in 1909. There is a small silver hoard from the site with a brooch also from the second half of the 10th century. So if we look at them all, they are characterized by geometry, fixed measures, standards, exact layout with the right angle cross in the middle. And you can see the largest fort, Agasport, fits well within the Yelling complex. And you can almost see in the diameters of them, Führkett, 120 meters in a diameter, Agasport, 240, Yelling, 360. These are not uh, coincidence. They are fixed planning. What we also wanted to know in Yelling was, is there something outside of Yelling? And one of the um, best known sites is about 10 kilometers to the southwest, a bridge crossing the wide river valley. This is what it looks like from the air. They have chosen then the widest point in the river valley to build a bridge. This is the site today. The bridge has been protected by a dam, so you can actually walk the 760 meters across the site. And there is a reconstruction which shows you the dimensions of the wood. This was an impressive structure. Timbers, piles of 30 by 30 centimeters built or made of oak, set up in at least 280 sections at intervals of about two and a half meters across the meadows. And the carrying capacity of this bridge, a massive structure, is believed to be about five tons. So you could really drive heavy vehicles across. Like Yelling, like the fortresses, this bridge was never repaired. So again, a short-lived massive monument. The Danavir is the last of these sites that I pulled, pulled out. 
The Danavirke is at the southern border of Denmark. It has been known for a long time, and it's the only one of these sites that is actually mentioned in the written sources. Dates indicate that the structure goes back to the late 7th century. So there was a perception of a borderline in this area at that time. But fortunately for us, again, in the, ninth, or the 10th century, extensions took place. And some of the dendrochronological dates, they indicate the same year, 968. So apparently, at this time, something went on. Building works were going on in Yelling, but also at the Danewege. And now, uh, our colleagues at the Danewege Museum, they have identified the Danewege Gate. So now we know exactly where the gate to Denmark was. It begins the Oxen Road. It seems a bit, um, the, the um, excavation photo uh, doesn't give you a clear picture, but it is the date of the site and it was in use about 400, all the 450 years that the Danewege was used. And if you look carefully in the lower image, you might actually be able to see tracks of wagons running through the gate, the curved lines of a wagon passing through the gate. In front of the Danewege, the Danewege is the curved line, in front of that is the Kortwege, which is a completely straight line with a moat very like that on the circular fortresses. So possibly this is what King Harold would have liked to see, a straight line sort of protecting his kingdom, an advanced point in front of the important trading town of Hidebu. So we have all these sites they are massive sites. They are structures that bring in something new. They are innovative. But we see at the same time that, as I've put it up here, tradition is combined with innovation. So it, it's not all new. The old parts include stone settings. They include huge mounds and they include an image of time depth, sort of postulating that this was here from time immemorial. If you look at the measurements, you can see that even though Yelling, the site of Yelling, looks like the other sites, it's larger. It's always larger. Here are examples of stone settings, far smaller than the one at Yelling. This is one of the Anonshoek, is one of the largest Swedish mounds, very similar. We have other sites with great mounds, the Gokstad ship burials, the burial site at Bora, the uh, mounds at Gamle Uppsala, which have this long, long history. Grave robbing, also an example of history looking into the past, is something we're beginning to discuss now because. Yelling, the burial chamber in Yelling was robbed, but so were other important sites. The Gokstad burial appears to have been built in 834, but was robbed at some time between 953 and 970. 
Was this a robbing that took place in the um, political conflicts, King Harold against the Norwegians, or did something else go on here? They have been down now to look at the burials again. A similar project to the Danish Yelling project, return to the old sites to see if there's something new. What are we talking about then? When we look at Yelling, when we look at the Trelleborg fortresses, when we look at the Rauning Enge Bridge, in my opinion, we're talking about a language of power. I have put up this. This is the Palace Cathedral in Aachen. No one would say that this has anything to do with Yelling. They are completely different. There are no parallels in the visual expression, in the architecture. But nevertheless, there may be parallels. Contemporaries looking at Aachen, they said it was an opera mirabili constructor, a structure showing amazing ingenuity and skill. It was mire magnitudinis, of remarkable size. It was plurime pulcritudinis, with exceptional beauty. That was what contemporaries noted when they came to Aachen. Maybe the same was the ambition of King Harold, that people coming to his sites, they should experience the exact same thing. The site is of exceptional size, exceptional ingenuity. An element of exceptional beauty has been added, the great runestone. So we may talk of these sites as also a language of power. Inspiration of the South is from the South is also evident in the great runestone. We can see that the runes are local to be understood by the local population. The style of the animals, that is also Scandinavian, but the horizontal ordering of the letters, the binding of the images, is not unlike a Christian manuscript. And if you look at the very, very small image coming from the golden St. Andreas altar, a portable altar created between 977 and 993 in the Eckbert workshop at Trier, you find an image, an, an animal fighting with a snake that is very similar to the one from Yelling. They are not identical, but they may have had an, a common model for this. So the Nordic context is clear, but the monument might not have been so strange at, to foreigners who might even have been impressed by the size. So what we wanted to achieve here was perhaps a stupor danorum, amazement, the Danes amazed at the sight of this. And it was targeted at different audiences. So the scale of yelling, it was probably not intended to be local. It was something to fit in the grander scheme of things. Continental politics, politics between greater borders, and it functioned only for a very short time. This is the area that we might view the um, 
complex in. This is what it has to be compared with. It belongs in a wider geographical scene. A wider geographical scene where social and political allies were crucial for an ambitious ruler. And here I draw inspiration a bit from Jon Vidar Sigurdsson's book, The Friendly Viking. So we have here a lot of allies and friends. Tove, the daughter of Mistivoy, prince of the Obodrites, became the wife of King Harold. So he went beyond his own, do own doors to uh, find a wife. In that, he was perhaps not so very different from his contemporary, Otto the Great. Uh, Otto married into the English royalty. He married a granddaughter of Alfred the Great. And when she died, he married Adelaide of Italy. So he drew gradually towards the uh, Mediterranean. His son, Otto II, married Theophanu, a Byzantine princess, not daughter of the emperor, but nevertheless niece of the emperor. And I think that when Otto traveled home, Otto the Great traveled home in 972, he would have thought that this was his last major achievement and also evidence of the success of his Italian and Byzantine politics. He had achieved an imperial marriage for his daughter. For his granddaughter, they had actually, or for his grandson, Otto III, an arrangement, a marriage was arranged with Zoe, and this time with a Byzantine daughter of the emperor. So we can see how alliances were created via marriage and how generations they furthered their ambition. We can't know exactly what Harold thought. We can't know exactly what his son Sventviskeg did, but Sventviskeg According to one source, Tietmar of Merseburg went one better than his father in marrying the daughter of Prince Mieszko I of Poland, sister of the son and successor, Bolislav the Brave. So again, marriage politics were very important. They probably visited sites like this, Ostrolecznicy in Poland. Poland is becoming more interesting at the moment. At this site, we have a lot of weapons, a lot of weapons from the waters, among them weapons decorated in Scandinavian style. And if we look at the Danish finds, we see weapons like the axe to the left coming from the Polish or the Southern Baltic area. This is even more um, important today because one of the new scientific methods that we can look at as archaeologists are strontium isotope analyses of the skeletons. Analysis of skeletons from one of the ring fortresses, the Trellebor site on Schelland, indicates that foreigners, foreigners were in the king's employ. So he had actually drawn in men, but also men with their wives, 
presumably, to be part of the military groups stationed at his fortresses. And this may have been, again, a way of making alliances with others, but also perhaps creating security for oneself, bringing in people whose primary loyalty would be towards the king because they had fewer social ties to the local population. So again, another element in the strategies of the Danish king. We can't know whether the Danes participating in um, foreign events, the major foreign event of this time was the Easter assembly of Otto the Great in Quedlinburg in Germany in 973. We do know that Danes participated, and according to Tietmar, again, we know that when gifts had been exchanged, everything was settled and people returned home in peace. They may have brought gifts back with them. A later meeting in Gnesen in the year 1000 gives us an idea of what such presents might have been. To the right, you see the Imperial, the imperial Sancta Lancia, the sacred or the holy lance of the German Empire. And to the left of that, a copy that was presented to the Poles in the year 1000 at this, in a modern term, you might call it a summit meeting. But this is what happened, that the gifts were exchanged. And across Europe, very few, very few, but across Europe, there are examples of significant workmanship of the 10th century presumably created at the royal courts of Scandinavia, very likely in Denmark. And some of these objects, they ended up in different circumstances in Europe. The casket became part of a cathedral treasury. The gold necklace, very similar to a modern mayor's chain, um, ended up in a buried hoard in the sand dunes of the island of Hiddensea. But they ended up across Europe. They may have been gifts in such a setting. The small image are silver pendants. Silver pendants, very like the gold ones, they were part of a Russian, today you would say a Ukrainian hoard, buried in Kiev several hundred years later, in the 12th, 13th century but they were maintained. And we could imagine here that they were perhaps part of this family's heritage. They maintained a memory of their Scandinavian heritage, and therefore these objects were not melted down. Finally, I would like to show you just a sample of another object that we've also studied. It's a completely different scale uh, than the Yelling complex. It's the coinage of the 10th century that is ascribed to King Harold Bluetooth. A publication is uh, under preparation in the Yelling project where these coins are studied in detail. They introduce a new motif, the cross, and as you see on the uh, right coin, it's a very stylized image of the Golgotha drama. To my mind, it looks as if the cross was the first part of Christianity that
that was understood and accepted across the crucifixion. As you can also see on the gold arm ring, if you tilt your head a bit, uh, you can see that again we have the, the mound of Calvary, we have the crosses representing the two robbers, and we have the tree of life presenting Christ. So these are the first images of Christianity that are really accepted. Yeah. So what we have is now a lot of evidence that indicates that King Harold was a very ambitious ruler, in many senses an innovative ruler applying new strategies, applying new uh, architectural monuments, but as, at the same time linking in to the past, having a, an awareness that the past, the past monuments were important. And just as uh, the emperor in Germany, here um, Otto II, Teufenu, ensuring the accession of Otto III, the child in the image, who is already crowned. Here we have the generations, the continuity. King Harold also put generations on his runestone, ensuring not only his own legitimate heritage, but also making a statement for the future. And I'm going to close this talk with images for the future from Yelling. Uh, we have an idea now of space, buildings, monuments that have to be preserved and are now covered, an exhibition building because we all would like to know more about this place, and then an installation set up last year which shows you the size and the dimensions of the Palisade complex but in a completely new interpretation. And I took this bit, image with me because I quite like it. Five local women had made, in November, Santa hats. And then in the dead of night, before December 1st, someone had put them up on the palisade. And I think that would be a fitting closure, that it is accepted that we now have palisade major building works in Denmark. Thank you for your attention. Thanks very much to Anne. That was a wonderful lecture. And um, I hope you can hold the content of the lecture now in your heads for uh, through through the next lecture which uh, Jan is going to give us now.